It's um, so wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you for coming out. Um, you do like to start early, which is great. Um, so absolutely uh, no problem with that. But it's great to be here. Um, so I'm going to... That's a good clock. Okay, I'll keep an eye on that clock. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's great to be here, as I said. Um, we're going to be talking about the topic of sexuality, same-sex attraction, and um, LGBT rights. That's nothing too controversial for us this morning. And we're going to be seeing how the gospel impacts our thinking on this topic. Uh, we're not really going to cover what the Bible says specifically uh, about the sinful nature of those relationships, because we're taking it that we're FIEC members, we've signed up um, to the FIEC Statement of Faith. But during the Q&A, there'll be plenty of time to ask questions about that subject and dive deeper into it. And the Q&A is also a good time to ask any practical questions you may have. Um, I stress now that no questions are off the table. Uh, doing the job I do, your skin slowly grows thicker, which is nice. Um, so absolutely no questions off the table. Um, in fact, the likelihood is if you have a question to ask, it's probable that somebody else would like to ask the same thing. Um, so that would be a really good time for us, I think. Um, so I'm going to speak for about 45, 50 minutes, um, set our thinking in Scripture, um, and then, as Bob said earlier, we're going to have some case studies to look at and some Q&A to dig into maybe some of the more practical issues that we may face. I'm going to share a bit of my own story, and then I'm going to look at how the gospel impacts our church culture, um, so how we can best care for people pastorally by being transformed by the gospel of God. And then we're going to look at some um, principles for reaching out um, with the good news of Jesus when it comes to this topic. Now, obviously, this topic is a sensitive one. I think that's why we're all here today, because we know that it impacts real lives and real people. But we've also already heard that it's a pressing subject as well. And just to confirm that before we um, fully begin our teaching, um, the Office for National Statistics, um, that will get you engaged, won't it? The ONS uh, says that 2% of people in the UK identify as LGB, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Uh, but that number actually rises to 4.1% for those in the 16 to 24 age bracket. Okay, so 2% of the population generally, more than double that for those aged 16 to 24. And I think that's just one example among many that this topic isn't going anywhere in our culture, that we're saturated in it. And with more young people feeling um, free to identify in those ways, I think it shows something of a cultural shift as well. So in my parents' generation, the LGBT rights agenda would have been seen as extreme, uh, but now it's mainstream, and it's the Christian, mainstream Christian worldview on sexual ethics, which is often seen as extreme, or possibly even immoral. So how do we respond to this? Well, before going into my story, um, I wonder if you could turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1. I felt it worth just sharing a few thoughts on Romans 1, because we're going to be looking at a gospel-driven church culture and some pastoral principles and a gospel-driven mission mindset as well. Um, and because of that, we're going to be kind of going quite thematically through different points. So I thought I'll just spend a couple of minutes to share a few reflections on Romans 1 so that we're anchored in Scripture. 
So verse 1, Paul talks about the gospel of God. The gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And verse 5 he says, Through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Obviously the kind of interplay between Jew and Gentile is a major theme in the book of Romans. But also this obedience of faith theme is a major theme as well. And it appears right at the end of Romans in chapter 16, uh, the last couple of verses, right at the beginning. It bookends the book. And so often I think we could think of grace alone being shed upon us, and so often I think we could forget about the obedience that comes from that faith alone, which saves us. Um, So Paul's talking here about the obedience of God. And Romans, as I said, interplays the Gentiles with the Jewish believers. And chapter 1 is really focused on Gentile sin, I think, which is why we see the list that we do in chapter 1. Chapter 2, Paul seems to turn his fire to the religious Jewish believers. And chapter 3, if we haven't got the message, he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore all need a saviour. So there are going to be many ways in which the gospel of God clashes with our culture. But notice Paul's response, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We have an inclusive gospel in the right sense. It's God's power to everyone who believes. And Paul is not ashamed of it, which is a wonderful, wonderful truth. It's no surprise that one of the clashes for Gentile believers was in the area of sexuality. Um, As good as verse 17 is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As good as God's righteousness being revealed is, it reveals a big problem, verse 18. We can't see God's righteousness without seeing his righteous wrath and indignation against sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. Paul highlights a specific example for a specific reason. And he roots this example in creation. Let's take a look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Creation's the context here. Take a look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then Paul lists... um, I'll oh, sorry, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of God for the, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is a, what the theologians call an intertextual echo to the book of Genesis. Um, lists mankind's creation alongside these animals. And creation, clearly for context. And then 25, Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So one way that this plays itself out is seen in verse 26. By nature, in our fallen sinful condition, we all want to say in our hearts, don't we, that the God who created us doesn't know what is best for us. We want to go our own way and follow our own rules. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for now women exchange natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. As sharp as that sounds in the English, nature there in the context of creation simply means that people turned away from God's blueprint for their lives, for God's created order. The use of female same-sex relations were 
um, socially equal relationships in antiquity. So with creation being the context and female same-sex relationships being referenced, we can't see these as exploitative relationships. And Paul goes on to say, likewise, men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. The one another now showing an equality and not a exploitation. So Paul clearly lists same-sex relationships as sinful. He lists it here to highlight um, Gentile sin and culture. I think it's worth remembering elsewhere when Paul talks about this topic, he talks about a trusty saying. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. And Paul, having just listed same-sex relationships in 1 Timothy 1, lists himself as the foremost sinner. Uh, what we see when it goes on to chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, is that the gospel of God is good news for all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of struggles and difficulties. And that's, I think, a wonderful, wonderful truth to remember. And I think this applies in so many different ways. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel of God. And I think it's worth, um, as we kind of shift into the main teaching this morning, just explaining how the gospel of God has been good news in my own story. Um, so I first experienced same-sex attraction when I was around 10 or 11 years old. Uh, it wasn't something that I chose to experience or wanted to experience or even understood um, in any meaningful way. Um, but with that experience, um, I really tried to push it to the back of my mind. And as a 10, 11-year-old, I became a Christian in a local Pentecostal <laughs> church youth group, which was wonderful. And there was something different about these people. They loved Jesus. I heard the message of a gospel. I thought, this is true. I have to give my life to him. Whenever I heard the word gay at school, it was always in a negative context. So even without knowing what that word truly meant, I knew that I didn't want that word to be true of me. And being British, I thought the best course of action with these feelings was to ignore them. Um, so that's what I did. Um, I tried to push them away. I ignored those feelings. And, yeah, gradually um, grew up as a teenager trying to forget about those things. Um, the church was really loving and really welcoming. Um, but just some things in the culture of the church made me feel that I couldn't share this kind of struggle with anyone. Um, and I'm sure there would have been many people there that I would have been able to share with. But um, many things made me think that I wasn't able to. Uh, for example, the first ever sermon I heard was on Sodom and Gomorrah, which wasn't necessarily the most partially sensitive. Not saying we shouldn't preach on it. But um, yeah, at the end of the sermon, um, the pastor said, just shut your eyes and raise your hand if this is, quote, your issue. And I thought there's no chance that I could tell anyone now. And, you know, during the prayer meetings, there was often kind of a running political commentary and cultural commentary. We need to pray for those people out there. And whenever new legislation would come about, like the civil partnerships legislation, I always thought that, you know, this was just a topic from the world out there which was against God. It couldn't possibly be a topic for in here for someone as a Christian to struggle with. So that was kind of my teenage years. I always believed in the mainstream biblical teaching, sex is a good gift from God, but one to be enjoyed within one context, a marriage of one man and one woman. Um, but believing something and living it out are two different things often. 
And in my early 20s, I had a great sense of loneliness and struggle. And um, I entered a same-sex relationship, actually, and tried my best to believe what's often called the revisionist teaching that says that Jesus affirms and accepts uh, same-sex relationships. Um, so I made that decision. I entered that relationship. Um, but wonderfully, God didn't give up on me. And um, no matter what I did, I always had that niggling sense from the Holy Spirit and that conviction that this wasn't right. Um, and after a really short period of time, actually, um, I felt convicted to leave that relationship. And for me, it came down to an issue of the lordship of Christ in my life. I felt like I was saying, Jesus is my Lord. He's Lord of my heart. I was worshipping him, you know, day to day on Sundays. But there was this one area of life I felt that I didn't want to surrender to his lordship. And I'm sure we all have similar struggles, similar battles, and all sorts of similar areas. Um, so I ended up leaving that relationship. And in leaving it, I thought that I was consigning myself to a sad, lonely miserable life, and I'm going to try my best to smile throughout this morning to convince you that's hopefully not true. Um, but, you know, it was the best decision ever, you know, after becoming a Christian. It was just such a wonderful, freedom-given decision, and God honoured it wonderfully. And amazingly, um, as we'll go on to explore later, I experienced a greater depth of intimacy with Christian friends than I ever experienced in my same-sex relationship which was just a real wonderful example of God's provision for me. And I started to see also that singleness wasn't a curse um, as much as I thought it was, and we'll go on to explore that later as well. Um, so God is good, Jesus is good, and it, the gospel is good news for people who experience same-sex attraction like myself. It's good news for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Um, that experience of same-sex attraction is still an ongoing battle, an ongoing struggle, um, but I found a great freedom in not putting my identity in who I happen to be sexually attracted to. And I think the culture can be so reductionistic in thinking that that's where we find life and freedom and identity. And I found that that actually isn't the case. Also, I think it's worth saying that, um, yeah, with that struggle, I started to realize that it, I wasn't as weird. I'm weird, but not as weird as I thought I was, in a sense. So every Christian has their own struggles and temptations. Um, so, yeah, that struggle with same-sex attraction is still an ongoing one. It's still an ongoing battle. But God is good, and he helps me through it. So, hopefully, the scripture from Romans 1 shows us that God's gospel is good, and we're not to be ashamed of it. Hopefully, my experience shows us that there are people throughout the UK who experience same-sex attraction but choose to follow what Jesus teaches in Scripture. Um, an organization that really helped me in this journey was True Freedom Trust, who I'll explain a little bit more about in the Q&A. And we have thousands of members. Um, I work for them, do teaching for them, but we have thousands of members throughout the UK who we support, who hold to the biblical teaching, but have these live experiences. And I think it's just really wonderful that such a thing exists. So that's something of my story. Hopefully that sets the tone for this morning. So I mentioned about the church culture that I experienced. So taking that gospel that impacted my life so amazingly, taking the gospel that we read in Romans 1, how can we apply these into different situations? How can we have a gospel-driven church culture that will help us to reach out and answer LGBT questions? 
First of all, I think the gospel means that foundations will be put in place. Uh, foundations will be put in place. I thought I would show all the points at once, say, so, uh, you know when the end is coming. Um, so often, when speaking at youth groups, I get, and we're really happy to do that, by the way, we speak anywhere, but we often get the sense that this is a hot potato that gets passed to us. You know, what do we teach the children about sexual relationships and sexual identity? Let's get the guys from TFT in to do it. And so often I think that we need to put in the big foundations, the big boulders, the big building blocks, before we can even have a culture that starts to cover these topics. Um, that was certainly the sense for me. Um, so the first foundation is obviously biblical authority, you know, to be humble and contrite in spirit and to tremble at the word of God. Where is the authority coming from within our church culture? It has to be saturated in scripture if we're to resist the culture around us. I found that's a really difficult one for young people to grasp often. And a second one, this life involves a cross. You know, Jesus doesn't promise us an easy life here and now. He promises each and every one of us a daily cross to follow and to take up. This life involves a cross. And also that as Christians, we are given a better identity, an identity that's better than who we happen to be sexually attracted to, an identity that actually has the highest worldview possible of the LGBT community. You know, we say that each and every person, no matter what their gender identity or sexual orientation, is created in God's image. That each and every person has inherent dignity, worth and value. We have a better worldview when it comes to anything, but especially when it comes to identity, than anything that's out there. And so often I ask young people when teaching, which do you find the hardest to live out of these foundations? And which is the most important foundation? This life involves a cross. We have a better identity. The Bible is our authority. And it always comes back to biblical authority because the others flow from there. And amazingly, they say that's always the hardest to live out as well. So why do I raise these foundations? Well, I raise them because I think the gospel changes our foundations. Right? The gospel transforms us. It transforms our hearts. It changes our foundations. And it also means that... When we get sensitive or wonder how often should we speak on this kind of topic, at what stage does it look like we're picking on a subset of society or being sex-obsessed, we can remember that speaking on identity, speaking on biblical authority, speaking on the difficulty of a Christian life and the hardship that we're called to face, all will start to build foundations for this topic. So it's like an iceberg, this topic. You know, the berg of the iceberg is not the only thing that we need to talk about. When we start talking about those things, making sure our cultures are saturated with those foundations, and we're actually doing a lot of legwork for this topic as well for our people. So that's the first impact of the culture, I think. Um, the second impact of the um, gospel-driven church culture is that singleness will be honoured. Singleness will be honoured. As I was saying, I so often thought that singleness was called a gift in Scripture, but it was always one of those gifts I didn't want. <laughs> it was always one of those gifts that didn't really appeal to me, um, so much so that I even started dating girls without having any attraction to them. I took one girl to McDonald's, and the kind of date went downhill from there. But I, I was just you know, wondering, what is it, as a Christian, that I need to do to get married? Because surely that's the goal for us. 
And I want to say that, yes, marriage is wonderful, um, but we should honor singleness as well. And it's interesting to me that just saying singleness is a gift never cut it with me, and I don't think it cuts it with most people either. I think what we have to do is center it around the gospel, because that's when we see it for the gift it is. And that's the same with marriage, isn't it? Ephesians 5, um, marriage reflects the gospel. Uh, Christ and the church, who are different to one another, are united to each other. Uh, Marriage represents, I think, God's passion for his bride and his continued faithfulness to her as well. So biblical marriage is wonderful. New life, all being well, comes from that union. And it's a walking mirror of the gospel of God, which is wonderful. So what about singleness then? This might be a harder sell, but stay with me for a moment. Um, I I often thought that singleness um, was looked on quite badly in Scripture. Um, It's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. Am I disobeying the first commandment that was given in Scripture? Looking through the Old Testament, um, oh, great, Jeremiah was single, but that was more of a kind of prophetic judgment against Israel, which probably isn't the best kind of case study to go off. So what happens? And what happens is Jesus arrives. Okay, He tabernacles among us. And whereas physical fruitfulness is and was very important in the Old Testament, uh, now there's a kind of fruitfulness which is even more important, which we need to remember as Christians. That's why Jesus in Matthew 19, I think, says some people make themselves eunuchs. Make themselves like those who are kept out of the temple. Make themselves like eunuchs. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of God. Gospel fruitfulness now takes precedence over physical fruitfulness. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as well, when the Apostle Paul is really echoing those words in many ways. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul, at least for periods of his life, a single man, wishing for all were like him. And we can tell that the gospel is probably the primary motivating force for Paul's good gift of singleness. Okay? Um, imagine if he had to write home to his wife after the third and fourth shipwreck and beating and everything else. Singleness was a gift for him to use. It gave him a freedom. I wish it all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Uh, The context there, marriage and singleness, both gifts from God, both equally honored by him. So we see that singleness is affirmed in scripture. It's called a spiritual gift. And why is it a spiritual gift? Uh, we move on. Verse 26 talks about the present distress. So some people may say, well, this is just a contextual thing. It's just for Corinth. Um, But I think there's universal applicability here because of what Paul goes on to say later. Verse 32, I want you to be free, talking about the gift of singleness. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things how to please his wife. I think part of honouring marriage is honouring the commitment and the um, importance of it and the effort that must be put into it. And we see that a biblical marriage will take effort. It will take time. And Paul says this, the unmarried man is free from anxieties and his focus is on the Lord's affairs. 
So verse 7, marriage and singleness, both gifts from God. Whatever state we long for, whatever state we... Hopefully, if you're, not, if you're married, you won't be praying for any other states. But whatever states we're praying for, we see that God honors both gifts from him. So I think the gospel is the center of gravity around which our marital status revolves. Okay, singleness and marriage revolves around the gospel. So how do I fall more in love with the gift of singleness? I think the answer is I have to fall more in love with the gospel of God. Okay, we probably won't say this to people who are struggling with the gift of singleness in those words, but that's what needs to go on in the heart, I think. Once we see that singleness can be used as a gift in this way, in service to the church, to one another, with unique opportunities coming for serving the Lord, the more we fall in love with the gospel, the more we will honour that gift. And I wonder, when it comes to our church culture, how much singleness is honoured, and I guess the corrective here as well, is that the more the gospel is made central, the more marriage will reflect the gospel and we will honour that gift. And the more singleness will be seen as a gift because it helps someone uniquely serve in gospel ministry. Foundations put in place, singleness honoured, intimacy experienced, intimacy experienced. Um, So often I thought that, okay, I'm going to be single and that's deconsigning really to a sad lonely life and again it was wonderful to discover that that wasn't true uh, that Jesus wants us all to experience a deep sense of intimacy um, David and Jonathan is kind of the go-to passage that people tend to bring up um, and really I think that's a passage about Jonathan's service and commitment to God and we should be careful about how we use it because David is a type of Christ but David did say when Jonathan died that his love for him was more wonderful than that of women. And David would go on to know a lot about the love of women, but there was something special about that love that he experienced with Jonathan. And in our sex-obsessed culture as a church, we could so often miss out on that, miss out on those deep, intimate friendships that can be experienced. And again, it's when we put the gospel central that this finds its fruition. Um, For me, trying to make deep friendships with men has its pitfalls and difficulties, and I find that when Jesus is the center, that's when it becomes the most healthy kind of friendship and life-giving kind of friendship. Intimacy experienced. There is intimacy out there. Of course, I said that um, you know, I experienced a greater depth of intimacy with Christian friends than I ever experienced in my same-sex relationship. And that was really shocking to me. But I think if I read Scripture more, it wouldn't have been as shocking as it seemed to be. Now, how do we experience this intimacy? Well, a family embraced, our last point on a gospel-driven church culture, a family embraced. Jesus says, by the love you have for one another, people will know you are my disciples. How are we doing on that? (laughs) It's a high bar. The people see the love we have for one another and from there instantly know that we are disciples. Of course, we're family and there's many wonderful examples of this in scripture. Uh, One of my favorites is Romans 16 and the kind of verse that won't make it onto a fridge magnet where um, the apostle Paul says that the mother of Rufus was like a mother to him as well. They flicker of a glimpse of something that was going on in that early church, a gospel-centered family. We experience intimacy 
through the family we're given. Remember Jesus said to the disciples, those of you who have lost brothers and mothers and sisters, and all these sorts of things in this life will not fail to receive many times more in this present age, all those things. How does this look practically? As a single person walking into a church, it can be difficult. Knowing where to sit, it can be difficult. There's so many practical things that you know we can see these things being put into place and how wonderful it would be if they are put into place. But they all stem, I think, from the gospel. The gospel means we change our foundations. It means that we honor singleness. It means that intimacy can be explored because the gospel's central and we have a natural thing we're looking to together. We have a natural binding force which links us together and the gospel makes us family, which is such a wonderful truth. Um, If these gospel-driven church culture points were put in place when I was growing up, um, I think it would have been much better (laughs) in my Christian walk and experience same-sex attraction. So what about gospel-driven mission then? Um, What about gospel-driven mission? I think the church culture is often part of a battle, um, but how do we reach out with the gospel as well? I think the first principle I'd like to give is that we always remember that hearts change before behavior. Hearts change before behavior. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, I think, is a really good example of that principle. Uh, There there's an egregious sin taking place in the church, and Paul is mourning that it hasn't been dealt with, that church discipline hasn't been actioned. But he goes on to stress that he doesn't take that action on people who do not belong to Jesus. Um, So just reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what Paul says. I wrote to you in my letter, verse 9, not to associate with anyone who is sexually immoral. And then he clarifies his meaning. Not at all meaning for sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. It's God's job to judge those who are outside in the world. It's our job to speak the truth to one another in love within the church. I think this is such an obvious point, but one I so often hear missed majorly. Um, We can't expect people who aren't Christians to live like Christians. And we need to remember that hearts change before behavior. That's such a vital point. And I think that also influences us in our political thinking. And we have good news for the whole culture, and we're not ashamed of it. We give this gift of marriage to the whole culture. But we remember it's not laws that are made here in the land that are going to turn people to Christ. It's hearts transformed for him. I'm sure we all struggle to live out the gospel of God in our own lives. Uh, How can we expect those who don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them to live it out as well? Hearts change before behavior. Let's remember that when talking about this topic. Um, But when we are talking with people, engaging with people, what can we do? Um, I think it's worth highlighting three cultural bridges here. Um, I'm taking this thinking from Acts 17, where Paul is at Mars Hill. He sees the idolatry that's all around him. He's basically seeing Romans chapter 1 before his eyes. And what does he do? Does he let them have it full throttle? He points to a statue of an unknown God. He builds a bridge with the culture and says, he's the God that I'm going to speak to you about. He builds a bridge with his listeners. I think there are three major cultural bridges that we can build on this topic. 
Uh, we have the identity narrative that so often comes at us on the subject of sexuality. Be true to yourself. You are your sexuality, so live it out. And that was kind of a message for ours receiving from the culture so often. And it's a hard message to resist, especially when we're not getting a better one from the church. Um, there's a song uh, called Same Love, which was almost the anthem for same-sex marriage in the States. And one of the lines of the song said, Live on and be yourself. When I was in church, they taught me something else. Okay, be true to yourself. Be true to who you are. And that's the message that our culture is saturated in. Okay, it's had nearly 200 million hits on YouTube, that song. It's a kind of popular message that appears in many different forms. You are your sexuality, so live it out. And the church told me something else. That's almost saying that the church is harmful for giving a different message. There's the love narrative. Why can't people love who they want to love? Love wins. There's the freedom narrative. People should be free to do what they want to do. And often this freedom narrative goes between the love and identity narrative. Um, you know, people should be free to identify how they want to identify. People should be free to love who they want to love. Um, on each one of those, I think we have a better gospel-centered message, which is good news. Okay, when it comes to identity, as was saying, we could say people are more than who they happen to be sexually attracted to. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. We can say each and every person is created in God's image. Inherent dignity, worth, and value. And as Christians, we could say that we are new creations. The old has gone. The new has come. We have something so much more valuable than the identity narrative that the world gives us. On the love narrative, we could say, yes, God is love. And because God is love, he's the one who gets to define the boundaries for erotic love. But we could also point to a greater love than erotic love. We can say Jesus, who didn't have an erotic relationship, loved more than anyone this world has ever seen. Okay, greater love has no one than this, and to lay down his life for his friends. We have a better love narrative to point people to. And when it comes to freedom, we also have a better freedom narrative. Okay, here in the sunsets free is free indeed. And we see also that actually... Living out our passions, our inclinations, our attractions doesn't bring freedom and it doesn't bring the joy that we thought it would. It certainly didn't for me. Uh, in Romans 6, we see that we're all slaves of something. Half, or however many, slaves of unrighteousness. And that slavery is real and it's oppressive. And those who belong to Jesus are slaves of righteousness. And being a slave of righteousness brings freedom. And brings joy. Because seeing the sun sets free is free indeed. And one of our activities um, from the second session is to think in our own words, how can we best articulate these three Christian narratives in kind of 30, 60 second sound bites? And I could say that if you're able to do that, um, you're going to be really well placed to have these conversations with people who are coming from a different point of view. Um, it's very likely in all my experience, that the identity narrative, the love narrative, the freedom narrative are going to come up. Um, they're likely to come up. And how good it will be if we're able to articulate a better story for us Christians we have to offer people. And also, I think it stops us, um, potentially, if the time isn't right, from a hard sell, from a full gospel message. It gives people the better story 
in a bite-sized form. Let's start building those cultural bridges. And I wonder how good are our church cultures going to be at articulating those messages as well and believing and living out those messages. And then the third and final point um, for this session, a better message proclaimed. I wonder if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. The gospel means that we're not interested in moralism. Okay? We seek people's hearts before we seek to change their behavior. I think it means that we welcome people into the doors wherever they're at. We love them wherever they are. It means that we can interact with those people who walk through those doors uh, with these three bridges that may be brought up as challenges to the Christian worldview. And it also means that we can proclaim a better message to them. Because hearts do change before behavior, but behavior will change. There is an obedience of faith that will come about from the gospel. And I don't think we do anyone any favors if we hide that message. Uh, Jesus constantly urged people to count the cost of being his disciple. And one of the costs that I had to count in my life was obviously in the area of sexuality and relationships. Uh, I just want to close by sharing two tiny parables that helped me to count that cost in my life. Um, So we're reading from verse 44. Verse 44 in Matthew 13. So these are parables about God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. They're parables about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I find it amazing that someone sold everything in response to this invaluable treasure, and it was in joy, in joy, that he sold it. In joy he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. There's something precious about the kingdom. It's likened to something worth more than anything else this world is able to offer us. Worth so much more that if we were to lose everything, we'd still be joyful. In fact, we'll be motivated by joy to give everything because of the gift that we've received. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Some people are searching out the kingdom And once he finds one pearl of great value, what does he do? He sells all that he has to buy it. Again, the pearl is worth more than everything else he had. The kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, is worth more than anything else this world is able to offer us. And that's the truth that's coming through Scripture. And there are two major challenges, as we discuss later in the day, the practical challenges that come from the LGBT questions. Uh, The first major challenge is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we believe that following Jesus, that having a relationship with him, is worth more than anything else this world is able to give us? Is that something we're accepting, not only in our minds, but in our hearts? And the second major challenge in closing is, are we living it? 
You know, if people come through those doors, if we have a gospel-driven church culture, which is set up for good pastoral care, if we have a gospel-driven mission mindset, which makes sure we don't put behavior before the heart, which builds those bridges, which proclaims this message, will they see other people living it out in their lives? Um, So someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, fighting against those feelings in a culture that says, just go for it, just be yourself, just live it out, is a lot easier when you see other Christians counting the cost of discipleship in their lives. When you see that other people value Jesus more than anything else this world is able to offer them, and they're counting the cost in their struggle, in their area of life, with their set of temptations, and living for him in spite of them. We have a good gospel, don't we, in closing? We have a pearl of great price. It's a pearl that we shouldn't be defensive about, that we should be free, and that we should give to the world around us. Uh, We've been quite broad this morning, looking at the culture, looking at reaching out with the gospel. And we're going to get a lot more practical, I think, in the Q&A. And there's plenty of food for thought in the questions that are coming up as well. Um, So do engage with the Q&A. Um, think of what questions you may have, what specific struggles there may be. Uh, but why don't I pray to close this session? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the pearl of great price, worth more than anything else this world is able to offer us. Help us to believe that and help us to live that out too. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we think about this difficult topic for the rest of the day, to put in place those pastoral principles, to live them out in our own lives so that our church cultures may develop through them as well. And help us, Lord Jesus, as well, to put in place those missional principles that we may reach out well with your good news. Fill us with love and compassion for those that are lost and a confidence in your gospel which is powerful. Help us to not be ashamed of it. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.